The topic for today, how to convert the Pope. Failed and successful attempts to bring the Messiah. With our good new friend, David Solomon, thank you all for coming out. It's a strange topic that Ari chose um, for whatever technical, not strange, I mean strange good. Uh, for you whatever. Yeah, no, 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 I know, I'm explaining that. For whatever technical reasons, we weren't going to do Jewish history uh, per se this afternoon. So we sent through a series of possibilities, and Ari chose this one, and I think it's not a bad choice. It's a bit odd to do it as, an, <laughs> as a talk for people that have never seen me speak, and as an introductory talk. But it's a fascinating topic, and I'm going to get straight into it. And it would probably come under the general heading of history if it was anything, but we're going to look at a particular theme. And maybe in looking at that theme, you can get an idea, uh, a broader perspective on some aspects of Jewish history, because Jewish history is gi-massive. And what I'm going, that's not a word, by the way, gi-massive, I just made that up. But what we're going to do is we're going to look predominantly, because the Jewish people have always been a people of hope and a people that look to a world that is better than the one in which we live a world without war, a world without disease, a world without poverty, a world without strife. Not that human life won't go on as normal, you might still stub your toe on the garden fence, but the big problems will have been solved and humanity's potential will be able to be fully realised and what we might call the beginning of history might begin. Now, one thing before we start, I'm going to talk, I mean, some aspects of this talk, some aspects of this talk, are a little mystical and a bit whoa but if I talk about anything that's not entirely understood please don't sit there and go oh it sounds very interesting but I have no idea what he's talking about let me know immediately if you have a question for me that comes from another universe that's just designed to see if I'm going to fall flat on my face we might save that until the end but if you don't hear something I say or don't actually understand what I say when I say it please just blurt out what are you talking about it's enough that I don't know what I'm talking about, let alone that you shouldn't know what I'm talking about as well. All right. The Jewish people, as I said, have always been a people of hope, and we've always been, in a sense, striving to perceive what we would call a, a post-Messianic world. We know from the Bible, we know from the Tanakh, that humanity has been vouchsafed the arrival of a redeeming agent. Now, despite all that you've heard from various sectors of the Jewish world over time, we don't really know what that looks like or how it's going to manifest. The Messiah could be a man. The Messiah could be a woman. The Messiah could be an idea. The Messiah could be a generation. We don't know. The most likely and the most traditional is that it is a descendant of King David, someone that the Jewish world produces that is going to look like Mandela times Gandhi times John Lennon on crack, <laughs> that is in fact going to bring and usher in a tremendously peaceful consciousness in humanity that reveals the oneness of the divine in the world, which really is the mission of the Jewish people, and everything that we do is designed to bring that about. The prophet Isaiah talks about the end of days and he ends his famous discussion of that with the words in Hebrew, and if I say Hebrew, I'll translate, so don't panic. Be'itah achishena. 
in its time I shall hasten it. And what does it mean? That's a paradox. Either the Messiah is going to come in its time, when the Messiah is good and ready, when God thinks that the time is right, or, Achishena, I will hasten it. Does that mean, says the Jewish people, that maybe there are things that we can do to bring about a speedier redemption than God's original plan? Yes, say the sages, that can be done. But it takes a very special type of either generation or individual to affect that. So what I want to do in, the, in this talk is very, very briefly, because you cannot imagine how many messiahs we have had. And statistically, you would imagine not all of them have failed. But we still live in a world that is less than perfect. So unless it is the cumulative effect of all of them that is going to bring the Messiah, then I'm afraid that none of them have really uh, cut the cheese, so to speak. But as far as we know, because many great people have done things in order to hasten the Messiah, and we are still waiting for their effects. What I'm going to do now, what I'm going to do, I'm going to stand up. All right, so nobody panic. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to draw a line on the board. Okay? That line, we're going to call the last thousand years. And the reason I'm drawing that timeline is because not because I'm patronizing anyone or treating them like idiots, but it helps us to anchor what I'm talking about. Otherwise, we get confused and we can see the evolution of a certain idea over the last thousand years or so. We've had a lot of messiahs, a lot. I'm only going to talk very, very briefly about just a few of the major ones to put a certain idea in perspective. I'm going to call this the year 1000, and I'm going to call these the year 2000. Let's call that 1500, it's 1400, 1300, 1200, 1100, 1600, 1700, 1800, 1900. I know my century is not entirely the scale, but they're all approximately 100 years long. Before I start anchoring it on the timeline, because at the end of the day it's a history talk, I want to point out a unique distinction, a unique distinction that historically and conceptually backgrounds what the, the figures that I'm going to talk about, all of whom are fascinating, and all of whom I'm only going to mention headlines, and some of whom you will not believe that they did what they did. But everything I'm going to talk about today is grounded in historical fact and comes with sources, and I'm welcome to provide those if people need them. <laughs> you would be aware by now that the Jewish people have a unique purpose in the world, or certainly we think we do. And over the course of the last thousand years, we have found ourselves grounded between two the striving of two great spiritual systems and ideologies in the world. In fact, one of those great spiritual ideologies emerged directly from us as a messianic project. Both of them partake in what we call the Abrahamic covenant. All of this 
is mystically inbuilt into the way the world is unfolding, the way history is unfolding. But on the one hand, we have Christianity, and on the other hand, we have Islam. We know, and the world knows, but it just won't admit it, that there will never be world peace unless there is a reconciliation between those two great spiritual systems. And the key to their reconciliation is a return to their own spiritual roots, and their own spiritual roots are us. That's not going to happen unless the Jewish people themselves return to their own spiritual roots. And when I say that term, returning to spiritual roots, I do not mean religious. The Torah, the Bible, has never told the Jewish people to be from or religious. The Torah is concerned only with telling the Jewish people that they should be holy and that they should found a society based on social justice. Religion is a whole other dimension. So when we talk about Jewish mystics attempting to bring the Messiah, we need to bear that in mind. They are attempting, in a way, to reconcile these two great spiritual systems through the Jewish people. I'm going to take a footnote now uh, to say something I wasn't going to say. Uh, please, um, don't look at me like I need to take medication. What I'm telling you is grounded in Jewish sources. But if, for example, you look at the Magen David, it really represents that idea. Christianity has a plerima of the divine that becomes immanentized into one individual. Islam, all of humanity is here, and Allah is fully transcendent. Whereas the striving of the Jewish people is to create a balance between that immanence and transcendence. But I'll come, perhaps come back more on that later, or maybe at another time I'm in Orange County. I'm going to therefore point to you a distinction, and I'm spending a few minutes on this so that the figures that I talk about, you'll be able to ground in the categories that I'm going to talk about. In Jewish sources, when Jewish sources talk about these spiritual systems, and you know, who has heard of a book called the Zohar? which is probably the primary text of Jewish mysticism, and I've spent quite a bit of time in the Zohar lately. The Zohar begins, the Zohar begins with the verse from the Song of Songs, Kashoshana ben hachochim, like the rose between the thorns, Kenra'ayati ben abanot, so is my beloved amongst the daughters. In other words, who is the rose? The Jewish people is the rose, who are the thorns? The great big spiritual systems of Islam and Christianity. But Jewish mystical sources don't say, oh, Christianity and Islam. They refer to them by the names of their deep spiritual projections as they emerge from the Abrahamic covenant. We refer to Islam as Yishmael. Yishmael, of course, who was the firstborn son of Abraham, who eventually went off to form the Arab nations and whose spiritual discourse is Islam. And the other, of course, is Esav. Esav transmigrates into Edom, this nation that lived to the south-southeast of Israel. And through Chazalic literature in the ancient world, Edom is merged with the idea of Rome. And Rome 
is identified with its own spiritual projection into history, which of course is Christianity. So we refer to Yishmael and to Edom in Jewish sources, and every time you see that in Jewish sources, you know that what they really mean is Islam and Christianity, but it's not always on the surface. We therefore, in a sense, have two types of messianic aspirants. We have those that are of the Ishmaelic model and those of the Edomic model. And they're both trying to achieve the bringing of the Messiah in slightly different ways. So the first couple of people I want to talk to you about exemplify that. They are fascinating, but each exemplifies one of those two models. The first... Now, <laughs> the other thing is, of course, is that when I come to a new part of the world and I speak to people that I've never had the privilege of meeting yet, and I see a lot of new faces, I never know quite at what level to pitch it. Please let me know if I'm talking to you about things that are so well known and obvious that we'd be wasting each other's time, okay? And I mean that, that I'm relying on your uh, kindness in that to gently tell me, look, David, you know, could you just up the level a bit? But the first person I want to talk about is living round about here. He's living in round about the year 1160. Oh, well, that's roughly when we date in the second half of the 12th century. His name, as it comes down to us in history, it probably wasn't his original name, but his name is David Alroy. Anyone heard of David Alroy? Sometimes pronounced <laughs> David Al-Ruhi, as sometimes is known, or actually probably his original name was Menachem Al-Ruhi. Always, always, every time you see the word, the name Menachem in Jewish history, the lights start flashing because Menachem has always been a messianic name. Has always been a messianic name. In fact, as early as the second century BCE, the sages were telling us that the name of the Messiah will probably be Menachem. That has obviously got various people excited about various individuals over the years, I can tell you. In fact, so much so that in the early... You see, it is not the case. It is not the case that every couple of generations the Jewish people go, oh, let's try and bring the Messiah. It is, in fact, a constant yearning it just bubbles up whenever the historical conditions allow for that window to be opened. In the early 7th century, already 500 years before the period I'm talking about now, in the great conflict between the Byzantine Empire and the last death throes of the Persian Empire, which is just prior to the advent of Islam, these guys are fighting each other over the land of Israel and we take the opportunity under... Uh, <laughs> an individual um, called Menachem to basically do a bit of a mini Zionist project there, go up, a whole lot of people come up and we actually created some sort of independent state for about three years before the uh, Persians and the Byzantines decided that that wasn't in their interests, they'd much rather fight each other. David Alroy is living in Kurdistan so that already gives you a hint of what model he's going to fit into. Like so many of the messianic aspirants, he's not only highly charismatic, 
he's also quite learned. He's a Talmud Chacham, he's a scholar. And it so happens in his case, in the case of David Alroy, that he is quite a powerful and well-known magician. What David Alroy does is he begins by gathering various communities around in an attempt to create a militia. This militia begins by capturing, first of all, the towns. Imagine, can you imagine a Jewish community bounding? Imagine all the Jewish communities of Orange County getting together to create a militia to conquer and capture Orange County and turn it into a Jewish state. That's precisely what David Alroy did. He was, of course, I mean, the problem with the Islamic world at that time, this is sitting, those of you who are familiar with the history of the period will know that around about 1160, the Islamic world is in a bit of a turmoil because they've just had their butts kicked by the Crusaders in the first crusade and the second, and they haven't quite got their act together. They're going to get their act together because 25 years later, Saladin is going to come in and kick the Christian crusader empires, but big time. But at this stage, the Islamic world is still in a bit of turmoil. The caliphate doesn't really know how to respond. There's a vacuum, and where there's a vacuum, in we go. David Alroy through his newly created militia of Jewish communities, manages to actually capture a chunk of Kurdistan, comes to the attention, of course, of the Sultanate, and he is imprisoned. Because he's a magician, he magically escapes. He's arrested again, he magically escapes. And obviously, his fame and celebrity is growing all the time. And then he announces that there's going to be one great big day. And all of the Jewish communities across the world, well, the world for him is probably the few hundred miles in radius, are all going to gather together, create a big militia, and they're going to go and capture the land of Israel. That's all very well. Except that on the appointed day, lots and lots of very keen Jews, who by now are firmly believing that David al-Ruhi is the Messiah, they don't have the luxury of living in the 21st century knowing that that didn't happen. For them, this is it. They all gather together. And they're all ready. And they all bring weapons. I mean, this is very grounded. Benjamin of Tudela, who is one of our most reliable historians of the Middle Ages, writes about this quite extensively. They all gathered together. It's just one problem. David al-Ruhi didn't show. He didn't turn up. In fact, not only did he not turn up on that day, he didn't turn up on any other day either. He completely disappeared. There are, is a very, very strong rumor that he was actually um, subsequently verified by other details that he was, uh, for whatever reason, uh, family feud, he was actually killed by his father-in-law the day before. Those of us with fathers-in-law know that that's always possible. <laughs> Why I talk about David al-Ruhi in the beginning, he's not one of the most famous ones, but he's a classic model of what we call the Ishmaelic Messiah. The Ishmaelic Messiah is concerned primarily with military conquest. If you look at the whole history of our struggle between these two systems, you'll see that our fight with Islam, our fight with Ishmael, has been for the most part 
a physical struggle over the land of Israel itself. It still is today. Our struggle with Edom is a struggle over the Torah. It is a struggle over the meaning of the Torah, of the Bible. It is primarily a theological struggle over the understanding of the revelation of God that has had no less severe consequences, but one is a spiritual struggle and one is primarily a physical struggle. Everybody follow that distinction? So David al-Ruhi is a classic example of a Ishmaelic model messiah. The second person I want to talk about, and please, please, please remember, I am only giving headlines of headlines of headlines. These are doorways you can open in Jewish history to find out a lot more if this topic interests you. If it doesn't interest you, that's also cool. <laughs> there are plenty of other topics. The second figure I want to talk about is a very, 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 very different person. He's born, we know a lot more about this individual than we know about David al-Rohi. This individual is born, this individual is born in 1240. What was unique about the world, were, uh, the year 1240? You know, all you have to do is read, ah, yes, oh. as soon as I tell you, you're going to go, ah, yes. Sorry? 1492. <laughs> what was unique about the world, the, why do I keep saying that, the year 1240? Was the Crusades over with? Crusades are still going, the Crusades go till around the end of the 13th century, I'll tell you, I'll put you out of your misery. Uh, and that is that, what is the Hebrew year right now? 5773, what was the year 1240? It was the year 5000. Okay. Now, if you're a mystic living in the Middle Ages, that's incredibly important. We have a very, very, very ancient tradition that each of the six days of creation mentioned in the Bible equal a millennium of history. We know that the Messianic project must be completed by the year 6000. So the year 5000 ushers in the sixth day of creation and of historical time. Don't worry, don't worry. I'm not sitting here talking about, oh, the earth is only 6,000 years. That's a completely separate subject. I'm talking about within the mystical framework. In fact, those 6,000 years more or less coincide since the late agrarian revolution, the rise of writing and so on, which really accords with the way the Jewish people see the history of the world. It has nothing to do with, um, you know, the Neolithic, the Paleolithic, dinosaurs, whatever you want. But each day of recorded each day that's me it's being ignored don't worry i should have turned it off i'm sorry each millennium of recorded history equals a day of creation what's unique about the beginning of the sixth day well the sixth day is the creation of man and woman of humanity that makes it extremely special that's the culmination of the creative process really And also, as you know, the Jewish world lives the macro and the micro together. So just as every Friday we bring Shabbat in a little early, we don't say, oh, now it's dark, now it's Shabbat. We actually light Shabbat candles before it's dark. We bring in the Sabbath early. Similarly with redemption, the seventh millennium is the Sabbath. That's the Messianic era. What we want to do is bring that in early. 
And if we're going to bring it in on Friday, why not at the beginning of Friday? There's a very special individual born in the year 1240. In fact, he thought he was pretty special too. At the age of 20, actually, why don't I tell you what his name is? That's going to make it easier. Some of you will have heard of this individual. Do you know who I'm talking about? No, no, no. Nice guess, but we're about 400 years out. Yeah, thanks. For, um, we were talking about, I'll write his name on the book. That's, that's, that's good. We're going to touch on Shabtat Tzvi a little bit, but we're going to talk about the next few moments because he's absolutely fascinating and actually is an individual. I mean, Alroy did his stick and then he disappeared. This person actually has an effect on subsequent Jewish history. I'm talking about an individual called Abraham Abulafia. Who has heard of Abraham Abulafia? Okay, so we already have some people. Now, Abulafia is born in 1240 in the year 5000. And so he always saw himself from a very young age. Obviously, he wasn't the only Jewish boy born in the year 5000, but he had a particularly mystical inclination. He saw himself as a very, very unique individual. He's born in Spain, in Saragossa. At the age of 12, at the age of 20, in the year 1260, he goes on a long mystical search. He decides to go to the land of Israel, but on the way to the land of Israel, he wants to look for the mystical river Sambation. The mystical river Sambation that can only be crossed on Shabbat. During the week, these huge boulders come up and down in the river and you can't cross it. But on Shabbat, the boulders come to rest and you can hop over them. What's special about the mystical river Sambatyon that can only be crossed on Shabbat? What's special is about what's living on the other side of the mystical river Sambatyon. On the other side of the mystical river Sambatyon are living the lost ten tribes of Israel. In 720 BCE, if you would recall, the Neo-Assyrian Empire had ethnically cleansed the northern kingdom of Israel already in biblical times and taken the ten tribes away into the dustbin of history that never been seen since. But legend has it that they are living on the other side of a mystical river, Sambatyon. And if you're Abu Lafia and you're living in the year 1260, you're going to go looking for it. He amazingly didn't find it. <laughs> However, as a result of all those, he was, I mean, the dude was out there. You have to understand that he's probably the only, the only person really, not the only one, but the only one really of note in Jewish history, you know that just prior to Abu Lafia, 35 years before Abu Lafia was born, died probably the greatest sage of the whole of the Middle Ages, who you've all heard of, Maimonides. One of Maimonides' big works was a very, very rational, sorry, sorry <laughs> was a rational philosophical work called Moren Vuchim guide for the perplexed, which was a synthesis of the philosophies of Aristotle and the Torah. Abu Lafia said, na, 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 na. The Moren Vuchim, the guide for the perplexed, is not a rationalist philosophical text. It's a mystical text. And, I mean, the Rambam really didn't go anywhere near Kabbalah or mysticism. But deep inside that work, says Abu Lafia, is a hidden mystical message, and I know what it is. In 1270, he has a massive revelation. 
This revelation tells him that he has to prepare himself to go where every special Jewish boy needs to go. Now, not law school, but <laughs> he has to go to the Vatican in Rome and he has to see the Pope and he has to convert the Pope. <laughs> this begins a whole train within Jewish thinking right throughout the Middle Ages and beyond because we have an ancient tradition that after the Messiah comes there are no more converts to Judaism. The last convert to Judaism is the Pope. The Pope is not just some, you know, apicoras on crack. The Pope is the priest of the whole system of Edom, the whole idolatry system. He's He's an entity, mystical entity. You know, it's, I mean, the whole position of, of Pope in any event is an evolution of the, of the position of Emperor of Rome. And it's not only theological, it's mystical, it's deep in Jewish sources. Abulafi is told in this revelation to convert the Pope. He prepares himself for many years, takes him 10 years. He doesn't try to do this actually he's gradually moving his way into the area he's been wandering in his mystical journey for some but john he was wandering around uh israel and italy and so on but event no not not as far as israel but about around italy around the mediterranean he's also got students so deep was his journey into this and so deep was his involvement in trying to understand what he was going to have to do to convert the Pope that some of his students got so confused that they themselves actually converted to Christianity. <laughs> but Abu Lafia made no secret of his project. And as the late 1270s are coming along, he starts making his way closer and closer to Rome and people meet him and they say, hello, Abu Lafia, where are you going? I'm going to Rome to convert the Pope. <laughs> and so word gradually reaches the Vatican that Abu Lafia is on his way. As it happens, in 1279, the Pope, who, anyone know who the Pope, I mean, I'm not expecting people to be experts on Vatican history, but <laughs> anyone know who the Pope was in 1279? It was a guy called Nicholas III. You know that the Vatican has a history of popes and we divide them into three categories. There are popes that are actually quite friendly to Jews. There have been. There are popes that are what we call power of popes. Right? <laughs> don't really care. Don't really need. Not against, not for, couldn't care, got other things to do. They're power of popes. And then you've got those popes who are serious anti-Semites. And Nicholas III was definitely in that category. In 1279, Nicholas III issued an edict right across the Catholic world, right across the world of the Roman Church, where Dominican friars, Dominican priests, were allowed forcibly to enter into a synagogue at any time and deliver a conversionist sermon, which they inevitably and invariably did. You'd be sitting there on a Shabbat morning, sometime between the reading of the Torah and Musaf, and in would walk a Dominican priest, and everybody would have to sit there and listen to a sermon about Christ. Imagine. It was awful, as well as other edicts that Nicholas III was responsible for. But like I said, Abu Lafia made no secret. I'm going, I'm going to convert Nicholas III. I'll talk, if we have a few moments at the end, I'll talk about the conversation that one would need to have with Joseph Ratzinger, because that is an interesting pope. I actually believe he's quite open to conversion. We just have to, you know. <laughs> Seriously, I've thought about that. I'll, I'll get on to it later. 
So Abu Lafya, they tell Nicholas III that there's this guy, this crazy Jew called Abu Lafya, who's on his way to convert him. Nicholas III says, here's what I want you to do. When Abu Lafya comes to the gates of the Vatican, I want you to take him, and I want you to put him in a room, a room, and I want you to keep him there. While he's in that room, keep him there for a night. While he's there overnight, what I want you to do, says Nicholas III to his administration, is I want you to go around and I want you to find every piece of wood that you can find. I want you to bring it into the center of St. Peter's Basilica, into the square. I want you to pile it in one great big pile of wood. In the morning, I want you to take Abu Lafya out of that room. I want you to put him on top of that pile of wood and I want you to burn it. Abu Lafya arrives at the Vatican. Erev Rosh Hashanah. The eve of Rosh Hashanah, August the 22nd, 1280. He arrives and true enough, sure enough, they take him and they put him in a cell. It's actually a cell. They've given him a cell which has a window overlooking the square in St. Peter's. And he watches and they gather all of the wood they can find. They make a huge pyre. And in the morning, they open the door and they say, during the night, Nicholas III has died and you are free to go. Now, true story. Obviously, Abu Lafia dined out on that one for quite a while. He regarded that as a fairly special experience. What Abu Lafia writes about that afterwards is that, I mean, Abu Lafia is also known for other things because he was a very, very big believer, as, as, as others have been, that an important part of the messianic project is that the Jewish people must reinstitute the idea of prophecy. Prophecy must return to the Jewish people. That is why Abu, most of Abu Lafia's writings are concerned with how you get prophecy. He followed the Rambam. The Rambam believed that to become a prophet wasn't the case that you got zapped by God, as others believed. The Rambam believes you have to work at it. Maimonides believed that you have to work at becoming a prophet. For Abu Lafya, that meant all sorts of yogic techniques, breathing, meditations, and most of his volumes are filled with those sorts of techniques. But he does write, based on his experiences in the Vatican, that the idea of converting the Pope is not for everyone. It's dangerous and shouldn't be attempted unless you're very, very special like he is. So Abu Lafia, and obviously there's, I'm giving it in tremendous brevity, but that's basically the story of Abu Lafia's interaction with the Messianic project. Abu Lafia is a classic example of what we call the Edomic, the Edomic model. Obviously, I'm going to have to edit the rest of the story. There's a lot we, we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about several more figures. But what I'm going to do now is I'm going to launch straight into not what you're thinking, because that can only really be understood if you understand what I'm about to tell you, which I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> because I'm going to jump. I mean, I, I already, I mean, I'm going to be crying after this talk of the things I'm leaving out, because there's so much to talk about. But I really now have to go to a major headline of headline because the next one I want to talk what about. What happened to him? 
Ah, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> he wandered around, wrote a lot of books, had more students, tried to get people more and more interested in the project of bringing the Messiah through reinstituting prophecy. But after about 1290, we don't have any record of Abu Lafia. We don't know what happened to him. It's an interesting thing. Uh, father-in-law? Sorry? Did he have a father-in-law? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, probably, but yeah. Um, in fact, those are probably had several. I'm going to jump forward now because what I want to talk about now is a project that really, once we understand the difference between the Ishmaelic and the Edomic models of the Messiah, I want to jump to a project that is possibly the greatest <coughs> and most inspiring in some ways of them all and the most impactful, maybe not the most impactful, but the most influential in Jewish history in my opinion. You know that um, the Jewish world changed fundamentally, as did the world itself at the end of the 15th century, at the end of the 1400s. You know famously, of course, in 1492, not just the same year, not just the same month, not just the same week, but the very same day that Columbus set sail, that the Jews, August the 2nd, Tisha B'Av, 1492, that Hundreds of thousands of Jews under the edict of Ferdinand and Isabella and the Inquisition spilled out of Spain because after that it was, and certainly after 1496, it was illegal to be a Jew in the whole of the Iberian Peninsula. This set was a cataclysm in the Jewish world because hundreds of thousands of Jews were now spilling onto all Jewish communities all around the Mediterranean, changing forever the face of the Jewish world. The new world had just been discovered we just had the rise of a massive technological innovation in whose shadow we still live, which is the rise of printing. The world was changing. And so was the Jewish world. Now, you know also that every time a new anti-Semitic idea comes into the world, it soon becomes very trendy. People go, oh, that's a good anti-Semitic idea. I think we should try that here. <laughs> so one new idea that comes into the world at the beginning of the 1500s is the idea that let's take all the Jews of a place, let's put them in a concentrated area, let's put a big wall around it so that if we need to know where the Jews are, we know where to find them. What's that called? Yes. Ghetto. And the most famous of the early ghettos is... Venice. Who's been to the Venice ghetto? Anyone? Oh, brilliant. So you would know. It is still a place that retains a, a tremendous mystical quality. In around 1522, the Venice ghetto is still quite new. And uh, it's only been around for about 10 years. But a certain individual turns up at the Venice ghetto. So what I'm talking, so no one gets confused. I spoke about David Alroy as one model. I spoke about Abu Lafia uh, is going to be, as he's operating here, but I'm now really talking about an event that's happening here in the 1500s. An individual turns up at the Venice ghetto in around 1522. He looks very, very strange. He's only about four and a half feet tall. He's got bizarre oriental clothing. He's got dark, swarthy skin, and he's carrying a big flag. And he turns up and he gathers together the leaders of the Venice community and he says to them, 
could you please get me an audience with the Pope? The time of redemption is at hand. They say, well, that's very interesting, but who are you? He says, my name is David Haruveni. David Haruveni. And I'm a representative of the lost ten tribes who have been living all of this time on the other side of the mystical river, Sambachon, that can only be crossed on Shabbat. Get me an audience with the Pope. In fact, he said, my brother is the king and I'm the chief of military staff. Why? And we're from the tribe of Reuben. That's why David Aroveni. Now, why was Reuben... Why did Reuben have the kingship? This is for the, the Bible heads, if they can work this out. That on one level, Reuben was the firstborn of the tribes, but there's another even more technical reason why the king of the ten tribes is still from the tribe of Reuben, because the last king, Hosea, of the northern kingdom was of the tribe of Reuben, so they still held the crown. I'm David Haruveni, get me on to They are blown away. I mean, you've got to realise that, you know, if someone came today to, you know, Orange County or whatever and said that, We'd tell them to take their medication, but <laughs> but just in case, we'd look on GPS to see whether the mystical river somebody John we could find it, whether NASA's located it. But just then, in 1520, remember, an entire new world has just been discovered, and the whole of Asia is unexplored. We don't know what's out there, and he's very, very presentable and very believable. And who knows, even if he wasn't, I mean, we still don't know. A few weeks later, Ruveni is on top of a beautiful white horse going into the Vatican. And now the Pope at the time was of category one. He was one of the Medici Popes, Clement VII. These were called Jew-friendly Popes. There were about three of them in the 16th century. Clement VII likes Davida Ruveni, and he gives him letters of introduction to communities right around the Mediterranean, even though we're at the height of the Inquisition. Ruveni makes his way to Portugal, and Portugal is King John, also an interesting figure. Now, in the court, and King John welcomes Davido Ruveni with diplomatic honours. Why? On the one hand, he's got in letters of introduction from, from Clement VII, but also because this guy is not technically a Jew. He's a member of the House of Israel. The Jews come from the remnant of Israel, which is the kingdom of Judah. But he comes from the greater house of Israel. It's a technical distinction. The Middle Ages is quite important. He turns up, but he's warned not to Judaize. Now, in the court, because the height of the Inquisition, in the court of King John is a young man who is born into a converso family. This man's, young man's name is Diego Pires. And he's a converso. Well, his family, a couple of generations earlier, under the pressure of the Inquisition, had converted to Judaism. Christianity. Christianity. So you're absolutely right. I'm not even. I was thinking. I'm thinking a minute ahead, and you're right. Thank you. That makes a bit of a difference. Had converted to Christianity from Judaism. Diego knew this, but he was very taken with the charismatic Ruveni. I mean, he had a. He was brought up as a good Christian boy. Very taken with Ruveni and starts to explore his own spiritual roots. And after some time, he goes to Ruveni one night and he says to him, circumcise me. And Ruveni says, no thank you. Two reasons. 
One, no thank you. Secondly, do you realise how much trouble we will both be in if I do that? Diego goes home, circumcises himself. Not an easy thing. And changes his name. Changes his name to Shlomo Molcho. Now, David Haruveni and Shlomo Molcho. Of course, immediately, Molcho and Ruveni have to leave Portugal El Pronto. And they go on this big mystical tour for the next two years of Jewish communities right around the Mediterranean. Great figures like Yosef Karo, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, writes that he remembers seeing them in Adrianople in 1527. We still have Ruveni's diaries. We have the writings of Molcho. We still have Ruveni's flag. This is all documented. They go, in the meantime, Molcho is having accelerated learning experiences, huge visions. He's prophesying. He prophesies a flood, an earthquake, even prophesied the sack of Rome, everything. And eventually, Molcho's people are very impressed. And eventually, Molcho says to Ruveni, look, I have to go there. I have to go there. I have to do what every Jewish boy who thinks he's a bit special might need to do. And Ruveni says, well, I've done that, but, you know, you go right ahead. So Molcho, he doesn't walk into the Vatican on a white horse. He sits on, because we have a very, very ancient, famous Midrash, that the Messiah is sitting at the gates of Rome. So he sat on the bridge on the Tiber with all the homeless and the beggars for 30 days before going into the Vatican to see Clement. Clement really likes Molcho. He likes him so much that he spends, for weeks, he spends hours every day talking to him. Rumors began to circulate, obviously alienating the whole of the curia that surrounded the Pope. There were attempts to charge Molcho. Clement saves his life. It's fantastic intrigue. There was a, the Pope had a Jewish doctor, Bonidolatus, some of you may be familiar with the history, was also involved in these intrigues. We don't have time to go into it, but eventually, I mean, the rumor even started that Clement wasn't just friendly towards the Jews. He was actually on the verge of thinking about converting. Malchus says to Clement, look, Ruveni and I have got an idea. Let's have one, let's get Let's get the armies of the ten tribes of Israel who are living on the other side of the mystical river, Sambachon, that can only be crossed on Shabbat. Let's, have, uh, let's get them together with the Christian armies of Europe and let's have one last great crusade. Let's get rid of the Muslims out of the Holy Land and let's establish an independent Jewish state in the land of Israel backed by Western Christianity. Because you know, Clement that you have to have an independent Jewish state in the land of Israel backed by Western Christianity before the Messiah can come. This is in the 16th century. And Clement says, oh, great idea. <laughs> problem is, problem is, says Clement, I'm only the Pope. I don't have an army. You have to go back to the Christian kings of Europe. I'm going to wind up in two minutes. We'll finish it. You have to go back to Europe. So Ruveni and Molcho go back to Portugal at the Heart of the Inquisition, and they speak to John. And then John says, look, if Clement's in, they have letters, they have Clement's in, I'm in, but I don't call the shots around here anymore. Those of you who know history will know that who was calling the shots in 1530, 1532? Isabel. Isabel. Charles V, 
the doyen of the Habsburg Empire living in Regensburg. Charles V, the grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella, who've just kicked the Jews over Spain. Charles V, whose uncle, Henry VIII, has just taken an entire country, uh, England, out of the church. Charles V, who's just presided over the deodorant worms that excommunicated Luther. So he has these two guys coming up to him with this messianic plan for a big reset. He takes Molcho and he burns him. And he sends Ruveni back to Spain in chains. The story has a tragic end. But it's an amazing story because it is that story that sparks the consciousness of Jewish history for the next 500 years. For the first time since Bar Kokhba, 1500 years earlier, we now have a realization that the Jewish people have a homeland and a purpose in history and a purpose in the world that they can return to. Our mission is not merely to survive. Our mission is actually to bring a light to the nations, to bring redemption to the world. What is interesting for the purposes of our talk today, and the distinction I wanted to show you, was that Molcho and Roveni really combine, they combine, don't they, the two models, the Ishmaelic of territorial conquest and the Edomic of the theological struggle and the conversion of the Pope. It is a fascinating story, Molchon Raveni. Those of you who are interested in those aspects of history in that time are welcome to look into it. All I'm doing now is just really teasing with headlines. The big, 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 most famous false, probably the most famous false messiah since Jesus, assuming Jesus is a false messiah. Uh, one's got to be careful all the time. If he comes back, I'll have to apologize. Is, in fact, of course, the famous Shabtai Tzvi as you mentioned earlier. Shabtai Tzvi is... is <laughs> everybody familiar with Shabtai Tzvi? Yeah. Okay. In, uh, Shabtai Tzvi is uh, a guy wandering around. He's uh, bipolar, schizophrenic, manic depressive, wandering around uh, Jerusalem, basically, in the middle of the 1600s. In the, so he's about 40 years old, and he seeks a cure for his soul, what he calls a cure for his soul, what we would call personality disorders today, but he goes and sees a faith healer called a young 20-year-old man called Nathan of Gaza, living in Gaza. And he goes to see him, and as soon as he walks in, Nathan stands up and he says, I'll tell you what your problem is. Your problem is, is that you are the Messiah. Your soul is reflective of the soul of the Messiah and the position of the people of Israel in the world. It goes up and down. Your depression, your relation, your bipolarity, it's all the Messiah, which is a very interesting thing to tell someone who's actually bipolar. <laughs> <laughs> that then means that Shabtai Tzvi and Nathan then go on this great big tour of Jewish communities, arousing people towards redemption, but it was enormous right across the Jewish world, even as far, you know, Anyone read the diary of Samuel Pepys in London in the 17th century? He's writing about it. Everybody is talking about it. Hundreds of thousands of Jews are getting ready for the redemption. People are selling their homes and this and that. He's in the Ottoman. Shabbat Tzvi is in the Ottoman Empire. Eventually the Sultan gets wind of this, the insurrection from the Jews, the Messiah, what are you talking about? He imprisons him in Gallipoli for two years. Eventually he brings him to the Sultan. He's brought before. Shabbat Tzvi prophesied that he would be brought before the Sultan. He goes, when that happens, I'm going to take the crown off the Sultan's head and I'm going to put it on my own. Obviously that was an important moment because the Ottoman Empire ruled over the land of Israel, which means I'm going to be the king of Israel. End of story. The redemption is here. He's brought before the Sultan, and the Sultan basically, through his vizier, says to him this. Uh, you can either convert to Islam, or we'll kill you. 
and you have about 10 minutes to decide. And Shabtai Tzvi said, I don't really need the 10 minutes. Where do I sign up and where's my free copy of the Quran? <laughs> that then set about a massive devastation right across the Jewish world that really, I mean, and, and Shabtai Tzvi and Nathan Gaza were deeply inspired by the Ruvenian Molcho stories. I mean, nothing exists in a vacuum. There is an ongoing continuum. But it is really the devastation caused by the Sabbatean events. And we have yet to have a Messiah that I'm aware of, except maybe Molcho. We've yet to have a Messiah that, whose followers didn't believe for several generations to come that they were coming back. And we've seen that even more recently with various messiahs. I have only touched upon a few, and I've got to uh, wind up now because we are stuck for time. I look forward, hopefully, to coming back to Orange County and talking not just about this subject, but a great, a great many other subjects. I'm happy to take questions, but we have so much more to talk about. But uh, thank you for listening so far. I just, I'm, I'm sorry, Eric, I'm just, 10 more seconds, because I, there's, there's just a, there's a point arising out of this, because you can all sit there going, oh, that's very interesting, but what's the point? There's a point arising out of this, but I'll be upset if I don't say, so it'll take 10 seconds. One of the most, himself, a shtickle false messiah, not false, but a shtickle messianic aspirant, uh, living in the 18th century, a very famous young Jewish scholar, brilliant, brilliant, one of the greatest minds, deeply affecting the whole of the subsequent Jewish thought, called Moshe Chaim Lutzato, himself someone around whom these things were said, writes, and this is an influential point that comes out later in the writings of Rav Cook in the 20th century and so on, writes that what is really behind all these projects is the fact that Great ideological spiritual systems cannot exist in the world unless there is within them, somewhere within them, a spark of truth, a, sp a kernel of truth. What the Messiah needs to do is to go inside and redeem that spark of truth and bring out its true light. All of the shell of the system will then fall away and only the truth will be preserved. This is why, for example, in the 18th century, you had someone like Jacob Frank, who saw himself as a reincarnation of all of the messiahs that have previously been. And it really has the idea that that is the role of the Jewish people in the world, is to redeem these lost sparks from humanity and to raise them up towards divine consciousness that will be revealed speedily in our day. But it is a fascinating topic, and I do. I just wanted to add that point, because at the end of the day, it is not about dismissing what most of humanity believes, it is about redeeming it. The Jewish people are not so much interested in salvation. There's no such thing as you being saved and you being saved and the rest of the world can go to hell. No individual is saved in that sense unless the entire world is redeemed. And we will not finish until the world is a better place. So, that's what I'm saying.